Uh, no one has ever prosecuted a doctor for surgeries gone wrong. We, the jury, having found the defendant, Christopher Daniel Dunch, guilty of injury to an elderly individual as charged in the indictment, unanimously assess his punishment and confinement in the Institutional Division of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice for life. Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine, where we mine the knowledge and experience spectrum of your peers through long-form conversations. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, welcome back. Today we have award-winning science journalist Laura Beale with us. Her investigative podcast series on the notorious former neurosurgeon Christopher Dunch is what brings her here today. Since its release last month, Dr. Death, as it is called, is now one of the top five ranked podcasts in the country. You've likely heard of this story, but just a recap before we get started. In 2011, neurosurgeon Christopher Dunch began his first practice in Dallas, Texas. For the next two years, he operated on 37 patients. Of those 37, 33 suffered severe injuries and complications. Several were left permanently paralyzed and two left dead from what all should have been fairly routine elective procedures. It's an appalling story described later by a surgeon testifying at Dunch's trial as a, quote, complete and utter failure of the entire system of checks and balances for patient safety, unquote. A failure that likely would have continued were it not for the heroic efforts of other doctors in the Dallas community who battled to stop him. Our conversation covers a lot of ground in a short time, including follow-up information that has come to light since the podcast release. Folks, there's just nothing enjoyable about this story, but it's also way too important to ignore. With that said, let's get started. Laura, welcome to the show. We are really happy to have you today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. This came up, I don't know, maybe about a year ago. Keith and I were talking about this story, and we had a guest on, his name is Norman Beck, and he's one of these kind of insurance analysts who does sporting events, really complicated risk analysis. Long story short, he, uh, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and this is a guy who plays bridge with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates every year. Pretty sharp guy, but he used a lot of the tools that he had learned over the years to actually pick the surgeon he wanted to operate on him. And what was interesting is this was the same time period that Norman was diagnosed that Chris Dunch was in practice, and Norman also lives in Dallas. And we talked about, you know, talk about dodging a, you know, a bullet, literally. And Keith and I talked about doing a podcast ourselves on this, but we both agreed that it really needed to be a journalist to tackle this. There's just so much to go through. And I was so excited when I saw that you took this on, Laura. I mean, I've listened to the entire podcast. It was amazing and pretty eye-opening. Just start us out. What, What got you interested in this? Uh, well, that's an easy question. Um, Wondery called me <laughs> and asked if I would do the story. So Wondery so, is a media um, company, right? I mean, they produce podcasts. Right. Media so they're content. not a, yeah. So they, they produce podcasts. They're not a journalism organization, but they team with journalists. Um, they, they just uh, released another new podcast, which um, as a physicians you might be interested in, that looks at the Aaron Hernandez case and um, um, a lot of, about, uh, you know, they got a lot of records and they really look into how much, to the extent that you could tell that CTE had to do with his behavior and head injuries that he sustained from an early age playing football. So so they team with journalists and they got wind of the story of Christopher Dunch and uh, somebody emailed them about it because it really didn't get a lot of national attention. It was obviously he- heavily covered here in Dallas, but but from a national scale, it didn't um, 
It didn't. So they just were looking for a health journalist in the Dallas area who could uh, write and report the story. And they called me and I said, well, you know, I'm a print reporter, right? <laughs> I'm not, I don't do audio. I, I've never done a podcast. And and they said, that's okay. You know, they, they, they could show me, you know, what I needed to know in terms of audio and producing a podcast, um, you know, but they just needed me to do what I normally do. So, um, and it was great. They, they were really, really good to, to work with and, and, um, they, they do great work and they tolerated a lot of my questioning stuff that I knew nothing about. Like, you know, do we have to have all those sound effects (laughs) and, and, um, uh, and they, they're just a, a good, you know, a good group, a good team. And, and, um, I, I, I think it shows in what we produce. Well, we want to get into that a little bit more because it's it's pretty interesting, especially to us being in the podcast world. But let's just start to make sure everybody's on the same page here. I think most of our listeners have probably heard about this story, but just give us a quick overview of who this guy was and why this actually was such a big story. So Christopher Dunch was a neurosurgeon here in Dallas. He came here in uh, kind of mid-2011 uh, he was recruited by um, a physician practice that worked out of um, uh, Baylor Regional Medical Center in Plano. Baylor's a, a big hospital chain here in Dallas. They, they have uh, their, their main flagship hospital is downtown, but they they have um, hospitals in the suburbs, and so that's where he uh, that's where he was recruited to work, Baylor Plano, and. Pretty shortly after he arrived, it became apparent that he was incompetent. Um, he couldn't do surgery, didn't know basic anatomy, and he ended up uh, injuring the vast, seriously injuring the vast majority of patients that he operated on, and two people died. And But the podcast also looks at how he was able to operate for two years at four mm-hmm. different institutions in Dallas when it was really clear from early on that he shouldn't be operating on anyone. So as I recall from the podcast, it may have been Dr. Henderson or Kirby. You'll have to correct me on the names if I'm wrong, but one of them was doing a case with him. They were so shocked by his, his lack of surgical skill. This particular surgeon actually thought the only thing logical to him is that this guy had to be an imposter. It's like one of these things you hear about in the news where someone's walking around with a hospital badge and they're not really a clinician. He just couldn't imagine that someone had actually been through training and was this bad. Uh, well, that, that was, uh, yeah, that was Dr. Henderson. He actually didn't operate with him. He okay. was called in at his at the second hospital where he went to after he was uh, forced out at Baylor. Uh, he got a job at another hospital. And uh, and operated. He lasted there uh, less than a week. And um, huh. two of the three patients he had, one died. Uh, one was okay, but her story continued later. And then um, and then the third patient was a woman named Mary Eford, and she was so injured that the hospital administrator then called in Dr. Henderson to try to repair what damage he could. And yes, he he opened. He looked at the X-rays. He opened her up and thought that there's no way an actual surgeon could have done this because everything, as he puts it in the podcast, it's like you knew everything to do and did everything exactly wrong. 
including yeah. and including putting some of the hardware, um, actually screwing it into uh, the muscle of her back. Just that's the wrong place, isn't it, Keith? Yeah. So I'm, <laughs> I I don't even know how to respond to that. It's such a shock. So, um, but you know, it opens up a whole tin of worms, which obviously you do in your podcast, and you do it amazingly. Um, I think people who are not doctors don't realize the process that's involved with getting a person through residency, making sure they're safe, getting them certified or getting uh, uh, board eligible as, as uh, I guess this doctor was, um, and uh, where things might have fallen apart. What did you learn about that system? What would you, How would you sort of use this to reassure people that there really are um, things that are uh, mechanisms in place to protect people, but that they fell apart horribly in this setting. Right. So the the mechanisms, the rules are certainly there. I think one thing I learned from doing this, it's it's not that the rules aren't there. It's that it's it's easy to skirt the rules right. if you want to. Um, so starting in residency, I I can't talk a lot about what happened in residency, although that's really the biggest question is how did this guy get out of training? Mm -hmm. um, they would, he went to the University of Tennessee in Memphis and they would not speak with me at all. Uh, so I, I don't know. The only, the only slight look I have as to what, what might've happened in his residency. One is that I know because we have it documented that he he was sent to a treatment program for impaired physicians during his residency mm. Uh, mm. for a number of months so that we do know because I have a, a recorded phone call where he's the, one of his supervisors is actually discussing that with Dr. Henderson. Dr. Henderson recorded the call. So we have that documented. We know that, that he was sent to a treatment program. Um, the other look, and this is probably the most controversial figure in the whole podcast is so um, you know, a spoiler alert, he did it eventually end up getting arrested. And the district attorney also had this question, like how much training did he do? And she, she couldn't get the records. So she has something that reporters don't have, which is criminal subpoena power. Right. So she, so she subpoenaed records from every hospital on his CV, every hospital in Memphis that he had operated on. And she, she sent out subpoenas to the hospitals and said, send me the records of all cases where Christopher Dunch was operating or assisting in operation. So the only thing that that would have missed was if he was just observing and not on the record. Um, but she subpoenaed all records of any surgery that he participated in. And she only got back a hundred records. So that's a pretty shocking figure. If you've been through residency, you know, you yeah. know, that's, uh, you know, to say the least, several orders of magnitude lower than uh, most residents have. Uh, yeah, so, I would I would say every surgeon I've talked to, including two neurosurgeons, Keith, um, another orthopedic surgeon, they were in complete disbelief about that. They just right. didn't see how it was possible. I mean, that right. gives you absolutely no grounding whatsoever for anything and no expertise. Right. So it's it, yeah. it's a shocking number. It, it, it is. And so there's only two possibilities that the number's wrong and that he he was that bad, even with the normal number of operations he should have had, should have had or the number's right. And he didn't do much in the way of training. 
I have no way of knowing. All I know is that's all the that's the only cases the district attorney could find. Now, one interesting note is since the podcast came out, I did get was contacted by somebody who was in residency with him. Really, and who did a residency with him, didn't want to be interviewed, but did want to talk with me and uh, and about that figure. And I asked him, can you believe that? And he said, absolutely. I never saw him. He said, wow. I never saw him. I never mm. saw him even at the supposed mandatory medical meetings. I never saw him. So, so at least one person anecdotally who was in residency with him could totally believe that figure. But I have no way of knowing. And then you wonder, like, what happened to the case logs? Like, he wouldn't he have had to have a certain number of case logs to finish? So, so if the number is right, then did he falsify those case logs? I, I don't know. There's so many questions I have for what happened during his residency, and and I I, I can't get answers because they, for obvious reasons, don't want to talk about Christopher Dunn. So help us understand a little more about this. We'll have to go through this quick because you know we're limited on time. But um, it was a criminal case that eventually got him stopped. It wasn't the medical board shutting him down on their own. It wasn't the hospital. It really took the justice system to finally do this. So this is where we are, and this is what we're talking about right now. In a criminal investigation like this, doing a subpoena of the the surgical volume records in the cases. I mean, could she have subpoenaed the any? data or any information about his substance abuse problems? Could she have compelled witnesses to come testify? I mean, what what were the limits of no, what she could do she, at that point? She could. She was limited because uh, she's in Texas mm -hmm. and and these records are in Tennessee. So in other words, could she have she could not have subpoenaed um, one of his supervisors to testify? I see. Yeah, I, I don't think I, I might not be right about that, but there was a, she did go and talk to them and, you know, their residency records are pretty protected. Um, but I, I, as I recall, I don't think because she's, you know, in the state of Texas and it's a district, it's not a federal court, it's a district court that she couldn't make them testify. So I don't know, Keith, is, do attendings typically make notes of the performance of residents, you know, is that ever yeah. part of the um, it, dictation at the end? I mean, the, the answer to that is only if there's something outstanding okay. uh, going on. Um, it is quite possible for somebody to be, I don't know how big the residency is, but in a bigger residency, it could be, um, uh, you could be totally anonymous. You could never show up. You could show up and, um, just sort of be there quiet, um, uh, hold the retractors, do a couple things under close supervision, and nobody would would notice, and there'd be no comment about it. Um, it you know, it all depends on the on the um, the program, but um, a lot of times the attendings were the residents are relatively interchangeable, so they don't they don't tend to notice who's working with them under under sort of typical circumstances. I see. So I have a question. So that means like if he was just slipping out. They may or may not have noticed. Right. I mean, the the, the attendings uh, often don't know who's supposed to be covering them, who's supposed to be in the OR with them. Um, and uh, I went to a program where there was so much going on that it was possible for you to to be nowhere because everyone would figure you were somewhere else. 
Um, again, I don't know how big this residency is. Uh, neurosurgery residencies tend to be relatively small, um, but uh, it is possible he wasn't in the OR or he was just so uh, invisible that nobody noticed. Um, and uh, you can be as sort of aggressive as you choose to be while you're operating with an attending. But a lot of times if you're passive, the attending will say, I don't have time for this. I'll just do it myself. And there isn't, isn't and there usually a competition awesome. to get in the cool cases, right? The unusual cases, people want to get in those rooms. So if you're not the one right. fighting for that, people are probably happy about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me put in two more pieces of, of relevant information since we're talking about his training. I, he, he was also during his, you know, his MD PhD, he was also in a lab huh. and while he was in the lab, um, he, he and the others in the lab made a discovery that, um, they thought would make them, uh, a, a lot of money basically. And so the company, uh, they founded a company that's working now to develop stem cell technology for disc operations. So I, you know, instead of having to, to do disc operations, in theory, you could just inject these stem cells into a disc and not need surgery. So that's what the company is working on. He made a discovery, patented it, founded a company while he was in his residency. And two of his supervisors were investors in that company because their yeah. names are on the original documents. So he was in the laboratory. Um, so he had reason to be in the laboratory. And, and then I interviewed a friend of his, an old time, a longtime friend of his, who went to high school with him and was an investor in that company. And mm -hmm. he told me, which is in the podcast, that he didn't think that Christopher Dunch ever even intended to do to be a surgeon. That he had in mind that he was going to go, he was going to finish, he was going to join this business, you know, be a science officer in this business, and he would never need to do neurosurgery. So relating back to what you're saying, he might have not had much desire to be in the OR. Right. Well, what a, what a shame that he didn't uh, recognize that and, and Stay not that act on it. Yeah, just... Yeah. And, but this is just conjecture. I, yeah, right. I don't know. But, but I yeah. do know that a friend told me that he never intended to be a surgeon. Yeah. Interesting. Let me ask you a quick question about this and then we'll move on from the residency. But when you hit a wall like that, I mean, what, how do you handle that as a journalist? I, I, you know, I, I even found a video, it was like an inside edition thing on YouTube yesterday. I mean, nobody watches that, but they were hounding <laughs> the Dunch in a parking lot somewhere in Denver where he'd moved after this. Right. The parking know. lot. Yeah. Yeah. Dunch, yeah. I, I don't think you're probably that type of journalist, Laura, but it, what, what do you do when you hit those walls? I mean, what, what's your next step? Just out of curiosity. Well, you keep trying, you know, you exhaust every opportunity without being a total jerk, like ambushing somebody in a parking lot. <laughs> Not that he didn't deserve um, that, but you know, <laughs> um, you know, I, I usually, if I get a no, I'll, you know, I'll keep trying. I won't just be like, Oh, okay. You know, I'll keep trying. I usually try to, explain, you know, why, you know, why I need to know this. I, I have a, a little analogy that I use, especially in cases like this, where somebody, you know, the fact is the people at the University of Tennessee, they would rather just not be in the story at all. They sure. would rather not be mentioned. You know, they don't want to be associated with him. But right. I have this analogy that I use, like, 
you are part of the story. I mean, that's the fact, whether you want to be or not. You are already, you know, you are already in the car and you mm. can't get out of the car. But I'm offering you an opportunity to take the wheel and tell me your side. And it's a genuine feeling. I do want to know their side. I do want to know the explanation. And a lot, most, a lot of times people will see like that I'm sincere, that I'm just trying to be fair, that I'm trying to get, you know, the whole story and we'll talk. But in, say, in this particular case, or in the case of Baylor, there are too many lawyers standing between me and the people I want to talk to. Sure. So, so I, I couldn't do that. that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think we've covered that all we can with the available information, right? I mean, anything else we're just guessing. Mm -hmm. But um, yes, it is interesting that someone approached you from there. I mean, that does... You know, that adds another piece to the pie here. And, well, well, and I also heard from, as a device person, you know, a device uh, rep who also works in that program contacted me as well. Ah, interesting. And could also believe the 100 number. Interesting. Mm. Hmm. Well, let's take a step back here and let's talk about Dr. Henderson and Kirby here. I mean, take us through this, you know, as quickly as we could, but, you know, how how this developed, you know, how many cases you think you actually did, you know, we know who the victims were for the most part and how many, how many bad outcomes and horrible outcomes and, you know, just absolutely appalling things that happened to people. But what, take us through some of the, you know, the early concerns that were brought up first to hospital administrators and the medical board, you know, how, how did this start to develop? You mean his, his path through Dallas? Exactly. Um, so we do know how many cases he did because the district attorney, again, subpoenaed all the okay. records, called every patient. Um, their, their office called every patient who was on uh, that they got records for to see how they were doing. So he operated on a total of 38 people. And, and, and how, how long a period of time? This was over two years. Oh um, but he didn't really start operating to any degree until... Um, the very end of uh, 2011. Okay. And um, he had a few cases before that. He actually had one that improved. And uh, he had, I think, about three that weren't hurt, but they weren't helped either. And then the rest of those were injured. And, and 20 of those injuries were serious permanent injuries. Um, so pretty much after his, uh, he operated on in de late December 2011. And then Every patient from then on ended up injured and, and two died. Um, and so he lasted at Baylor. They got rid of him in, uh, in March after um, he, he had uh, he'd operated on his best friend, uh, actually, and his best friend ended up a quadriplegic. And then, after, and then the case after that, he operated on a lady who was in for a uh, outpatient, just an outpatient uh, operation to relieve pressure on a nerve. She'd had a fall. And it was supposed to be a very simple operation, um, and she died. He cut an artery, and she bled to death. And so Baylor got rid of him after that, and then he went on to three more institutions. So, But the doctors in Dallas were so, – so that there were – Surgeons in Dallas who were working to try to stop him and could not. And he was never board certified, was he? I mean, he couldn't have been with this. No, not from what I can tell. Because okay. his CV, I think, says board eligible. 
And just a reminder to anybody who doesn't know this, most of our listeners do, but, you know, for board certification, there's a review process. You pick a number of cases, and then a committee evaluates those cases and the, uh, you know, the clinical findings, you know, leading up to deciding to do surgery, all that. So there's no way he ever would have passed something like that. So, so, so it started end of 2011, and what was the year that he stopped? Uh, he was finally stopped in June of 2013. So, so it it was pretty much 18 months of surgery. I'm just calling up his CV to see if he was board certified and he doesn't say board certified on his, I think, I think somewhere I saw he called himself board eligible. Yeah. That's pretty common, but that yeah. doesn't mean anything at all. I know, yeah, well, but it, <laughs> yeah, it means he, it means he graduated from a, uh, a residency. That's about it. And then uh, yeah. they have a couple years to collect cases and then there's a collection period. So, um, but, yeah. uh, yeah, it, it would, although, you know, as we say, hard to believe that he could get through a review process at all and get a job. So it's, I guess it's not impossible that he could have got a board certification. We, we like to hope he wouldn't have. So but yeah, definitely wouldn't have been other people to question too, if they ever gotten to that point. But yeah, so not long, you know, one of the, one of the things you talked about this in the podcast, I mean, these surgeons can be huge money makers for hospitals. And that might, you know, play a part sometimes in the reluctance to get rid of somebody, especially if they're making money. But with only 38 cases and just, you know, a couple of years, basically, it's not a that can't that's not, you know, bringing in a lot of money. I mean, why? why one, there's actually I think a, he was hired, but I think he was hired with the potential to make money. So oh, in other sure. words, he wasn't. Remember, he didn't last very long at any of these places. That's true. And so. Right. So I think he they he was hired with the potential for making money. And then they realized what they had Good point. Um, and, and passed him and passed him on. Yeah. Um, so, but I, and I also think this is completely my own opinion. So couch it in those terms, but I also think too, the potential to make a lot of money maybe allowed administrators to sort of rationalize red flags that they might have gotten otherwise to explain it away because they really wanted to hire a neurosurgeon. Sure. So, yeah. and I could see, I don't know that, but I could totally see that happening. Like being able to, you know, write off something that should raise a question because you're so eager to hire a neurosurgeon. Right. Did, although there are a lot of neurosurgeons. <laughs> did you, um, do you know, did he have um, any sort of research appointment at Baylor? Um, is it, could his, uh, potential business and, and the, um, the stem cell work is, could that have been a factor? In no, that wasn't affected with Baylor. That wasn't affected with, I mean, that wasn't, um, a factor with Baylor at all. Cause they were not involved. That was back in Tennessee. Right. And, and he had already been kicked out of that company by then. That's why oh. he became mm. a neurosurgeon because his founders and his partners in that business, um, kicked him out. And so I think. So then he had no choice but to turn to neurosurgery to make a living. And they, and they talked uh, to you, didn't they? No, they, they didn't talk to you. They, nobody all. from the company. No, but I, I, I do know that he, kicked, they, he was kicked out of the company. Interesting. Because I talked to, again, somebody else who was also a partner in that company. But nobody officially associated with the company uh, would talk to me other than to say that, that he, had, you know, he had resigned from there. Interesting. Wow. Laura, did you have a chance to talk to any of his patients at all? 
Yes, I did. Um, there are uh, four of them, I think, in the podcast. And um, yes, I, I, I did. And, and their stories are, as you can imagine, are very moving because, um, right. you know, they had horrible things happen to them. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, obviously, it's horrific. And after the fact, it's it's. Um you know, it's, it's, it's trauma. It's, it's, uh, you know, the, the traumatic stress of having gone through, uh, these terrible outcomes. Were you able to discuss at all with them why they chose a surgeon who had done so few cases? What was it about him that, that made them think he was the one to do the surgery? Yeah, they didn't know. They, okay. they didn't know. I mean, that's one of the frustrations. Um, you talked in the beginning about someone you knew who carefully chose their surgeon, but for the general, um, you know, for us in the, out in the public, I mean, there's not a whole lot that you can find out. And so, and one of his patients even, you know, had the wherewithal to actually look him up at the state medical board to see, you know, which not everybody even knows to do that. And he mm -hmm. looked him up at the board and found nothing. And of course, at that time, he was under investigation uh, by the by the medical board. But you can't know that, and they had no way of knowing, um, you know, the horrible track record that he had. And this is, you know, on that site, the health grades rating site. So mm -hmm. on the health grades rating site, he astoundingly had like four point five out of five stars rated. So. But clearly he was getting rated by people who were not his patients. I mean, he had a very carefully curated internet presence. So just mm -hmm. from looking at what you could find on the internet, um, there were there were no red flags. And of course, in person, he was very charming. He was very confident. So he would come across to patients and was, then he would say, oh, I've done hundreds of these operations, thousands of them. You know, mm -hmm. I've never had any complications. So he would just assure them. And, and so he had a mannerism that came off as very, uh, confident and, um, and one patient even, so he had paid for, uh, an infomercial, one of these best docs networks, infomercials, but the way it was worded, the patient thought, Oh, he's won an award for his patient care. <laughs> and because they, if you don't know that it's just a paid advertisement, um, and it says best docs network, and there are all these best doctor ratings around, so he thought he had been, you know, chosen for this. And he told him, and he you know, told him he's been chosen for it. So it's, they didn't, they, they didn't know. And I don't blame them for not knowing because they all tried to do their homework. Right. Uh, it was just, it, it was just hard. I mean, I'm sure you encounter this as well. It's very limited what you can really find out. It, it is. We've talked about that a lot on the show. And uh, I mean, health grades, it, to make a decision on something as important as this and to go to some website and read anonymous opinions, it may work for a restaurant, but not for this. Right. And this proves But it. what else is there? That's true. There really isn't. Well, okay, what else is there? So tell us a little about this National Practitioner Data Bank. Most of us have heard about this, but tell us what you know about this and how this plays in the story. Right. So, so this is something that is not available to the public. Even other doctors can't see the National Practitioner Data Bank. It was set up in the 80s. It's been operation since 1990. And it's supposed to be kind of a way to keep track of, of bad doctors. It's like if you, there are certain criteria um, that, um, that require reporting to the, to this, uh, to the National Practitioner Data Bank. It's a federal data bank. 
Um, and, and so administrators are supposed to look at the data bank and see if, if a doctor's on there before they hire him. Because if, it, if there's a report on the data bank, that's a clear red flag. Now, I need to back up and say not all reports to the data bank mean you're a bad doctor. Because there are some minor things that get reported. Um, malpractice settlements get reported. So it doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad doctor, but you can tell if you're a hospital administrator whether it's a serious something serious or not. And so certain things are required to be reported. For example, if a doctor's disciplined more than you know 30, 30 or 31 days, that triggers a mandatory reporting to the data bank. If a doctor has his privileges revoked, that triggers a mandatory reporting to the data bank. And when you say mandatory, uh, is there any penalty for not doing this? There's supposed to be, but it's but it is federal law. Mm-hmm. Now that said, has ever anyone ever been taken to task for not reporting? I don't know because what happens is I, I don't think a hospital would just outright defy reporting, just say no, we're not going to reporting. So what they do, or what happened in this case is they get around the rules. So he was disciplined for 20 some odd days, not 30 days. And he was allowed to, he was forced to resign instead of being fired. So on paper, they weren't required to be reported, even though he'd had catastrophic outcomes. I see. And and to give you a sense of how often this happens, there's a consumer watchdog group that has actually done a study of how how often, or let me back up. There's a consumer group that's actually done a study of, of hospital reporting, and they found that half the hospitals in the country had never reported a single doctor to the data bank. Wow. So, for any reason. So... So it's not what Baylor did is not unusual. And so I so there no, there wouldn't be any penalty because technically they didn't have to report him. Wow. And so then not a useful tool, to the, really. Certainly right. not for patients. And then he goes to right, and then he goes to the second hospital. He has these he lasts there a week, you know, one lady dead, uh, you know, one lady paralyzed, you know, and the the third patient's seemingly okay. They got rid of him, and they didn't report him to the data bank either. So, uh-huh. and so when hospitals then would the next hospital would come along check the data bank, there's nothing in there. Unbelievable. You'd think they'd just make a phone call or take somebody out for a beer after work and ask them, but yeah. I guess they're in competition with each other, so maybe they don't. It's just yeah. Wow. All right, so we're getting close to time, Laura. So, a couple more questions here. One, so there was a surgeon called in during um, the you know the trial. Um, he was an expert witness, and from what I can tell, he wasn't there to defend Dunch. He was there to just give his assessment of the overall situation. And he said, and I'll quote here: "For the number of catastrophic injuries that occurred over a short time, period of time, it would be hard pressed for those deficiencies to not show up during training." He continued, this was a complete and utter failure of the entire system of checks and balances for patient safety. So just based on what you've learned, you know, it was a failure of the system too. And what, just quickly, what do you think could be done to improve this in the future? I mean, what could change? And, you know, we're not asking you to, you know, come up with new legislation or run for office, Laura, just, you know, just your assessment <laughs> of what went wrong here. <laughs> 
you know, one is, you know, hospitals, I would hope that as a result of this, because I, I would imagine, as I said, I don't think what happened in terms of hospitals getting around the rules for reporting him, I, I would guess that that's not that unusual. My hope would be that anybody who hears this podcast and hears what happens would try to adhere to the rules a little more and would try to do more when they know a doctor is bad because they, you know, maybe they would have pause and think, is this going to be our Christopher Dench? Because, no, these hospitals don't look good now because they dropped the ball on him. And, you know, it came back to haunt them. And so I would hope, even if you're not compelled to do the right thing just because it's the right thing, <laughs> that you might think, you know, this guy could go on or this woman could go on and hurt someone else. And we really should follow the rules in this. We should report, you know, to the data bank. We should report to the medical board. And, and we, you know, should adhere to these safeguards that are set up. That would be my hope is that. And, you know, and I think patients, it's a cautionary tale for patients. Like, it's, and it's hard. And it's hard to put that burden on patients. You know, you're already... In, you know, in need of surgery or, you know, you're hurting, you're in pain and to put that extra burden on like, okay, but checking out the doctor is your job. And that's really, that's really tough. It doesn't seem fair, but it's really, I think all you can do. It is right now. I mean, it absolutely is. I mean, we didn't even get into, you know, you know, becoming a armchair psychiatrist here, but the guy clearly had some, some mental health issues for, you know, from, everything that was reported and his email exchanges, everything. Right. Um, and my understanding, he was, he did go through a psychological screening at one point. Was that true? Uh, yeah, Baylor did, but I, they put him in a psychological screening, but they said he passed. Yeah. So. I don't even know what to say about <laughs> that. I, I remember hearing that and I just, you know, yeah, yeah we could go on for an hour talking about that one, but. <laughs> well, that's why it's a six part podcast. There's a lot to right. talk about. That's right. Well, okay. So, you know, kind of wrapping things up here. I, w I wish we could spend another hour on this, but uh, I, I encourage everybody to listen to it. I mean, I thought it was well done. Uh, you put, you know, tremendous amount of effort into it. I mean, tell us how this has been received so far. You've been in print journalism for a long time. This is new for you. What do you think about this so far as a medium for, for doing investigative journalism and getting, you know, stories out there? You know, I enjoyed telling it in the audio format. It was it was new for me, but I, I did I did enjoy it. And the reception's been really overall it's it's been really it's been really good. Um I think doctors have you know I mean doctors were not the villains here. There were as you listen to it, I mean the doctors were the heroes of this because without them and without their pushing of the other surgeons, I mean, who knows it would have gone on even longer. So I think in that regard, I also think some of the weaknesses in the system I talk about, doctors are already very familiar with. So, um, so, so the medical community, I think, has been very supportive. I can tell you the one thing that they didn't like, obviously, is I did address um, the effects of tort reform on the patients. Right. And that didn't go over very well <laughs> right. with the doctors, because this is a very controversial and, and sensitive areas. And it, it played into the story. It wasn't meant to, uh, you know, gotten a couple of emails like, you know, well, why did you turn around and attack doctors? Which it wasn't an attack on doctors. It was basically trying to explain another 
safeguard in this case that didn't come through because his patients had trouble finding malpractice attorneys, even despite the horrible things that had been done to them that were clearly Mm -hmm. malpractice. Patient after patient told me they couldn't find a lawyer to take their case. And you're thinking, if, if that case can't find a lawyer... You know what's what's going on, and so and so for all of us was, outside of Texas, there, the tort reform means there's a cap on on damages, on, right? What what is yeah. that? Just so we know, in Texas, it's uh, two hundred fifty thousand dollars a cap, and um, so so my addressing it was only in in the context of here's how it affected his patients, and it also meant that Dent wasn't really afraid of malpractice cases, and so so. Um, you know, the vast majority of doctors I know are going to be good doctors and do the right thing, regardless of the threat of malpractice. But there are doctors who might, you know, be more cautious because they would fear malpractice suit, but Dunst didn't have to, you know, have to fear that. So, but otherwise, in general, the medical community has been uh, very su- supportive. Um, and even the tort reform didn't you know, it, it didn't put off a lot. Because well, one them, attorney so. did take on almost all of the cases, right? What? Right. She took on because they couldn't find anyone else. So she took 14 cases wow. uh, because she was on the news and patients be like, oh, she'll take a case. And so and so she would take another one and somebody else would hear and she'd take another one. I said, she'd, and she'd say, well, you know, I couldn't turn, you know, I've taken this one. I couldn't turn down that one because she just felt like what had occurred was such a travesty. And mm-hmm. she had other doctors asking her, please take this person's case, you know, so because she's been around a while. So, yeah, so she took 14 cases uh, just on her on her own because these people couldn't find other um, other attorneys to take them. Unbelievable. And in the end, he's he's in prison for life. What was he eventually charged with? He was eventually convicted on a charge of he was he was actually on trial just for one particular case um, injury to an elderly person um, uh, because of one of his patients uh, was 71 at the time. And there's a law in Texas about knowingly or intentionally harming an older person. And in that one, um, the state went after that case because the penalty was uh, was up to life in prison. So it had the strongest, um, it it was really in terms of the law, they thought that, that that one really had the strongest case. And so, so, but there were other cases presented in court because they presented other cases to show that this was part of a pattern. And the legal argument was to say, well, by the time he operated on this lady, he had to know that he was going to hurt her because he had had all these other cases before him that had gone wrong. And so that's why the judge ruled that they were able to show prior cases, even though usually in a criminal court, you can't do that. Mm. But that's also the basis of his appeal. uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. And if you want to learn, it's really interesting. The legal arguments were quite interesting in the uh, episode seven, which is a follow-up is, is talks about the appeal. And I went to the appeal and the legal arguments that, that they presented were, were quite interesting. So if you haven't listened to episode seven and really want to get into more of the nitty gritty of the legal case, it's, it's there. Probably. I think I actually stopped at six. I didn't know there was a seven, so I will. Yeah. So, so seven is, is, uh, it's, it's a lot about the appeals hearing. So I, it, it, if the legal aspect of it really interests you that I would listen to episode seven. I will. Well, just to wrap things up here, Laura, there's so much more I want to talk to you about, but, uh, 
we do have to, you know, time limit today. Based on your experience here with the podcast, I mean, is this, is this a future option for you? I mean, what, what, what kind of uh, other plans are you thinking about? I mean, I don't have plans at the moment to do another podcast, but if the right story came along, I, I certainly would. I, I didn't, I did enjoy it. It was, it was a different way of telling a story and you can see the contrast or I had a public, I had a, uh, a published story on ProPublica and you can, which the same content, obviously a lot shorter, um, I mean, the feature is 8,000 words long, but it's the same content. You can see the differences in the way the story was told and, and I, I enjoyed it. So if the right story comes along. I'd certainly do another podcast. Yeah, when we're looking at all the, you know, the declines in readership and print journalism and a lot of the threats to it, I mean, am I being too hopeful that maybe, you know, this is another medium that, you know, can support real journalism? You know, actually, there is a lot of thought that this, the, in terms of, you know, long form reporting, that really podcasting is sort of the new frontier on it. And it certainly reaches, you know, reaches a lot more people, a lot of audience, you know, we're becoming you know, it's a lot easier to put your earbuds in and listen to something as you commute or go about your day than it is to read the newspaper or magazine. So it reaches a lot, you know, it can reach a lot wider audience. I, of course, as a journalist, I'd say we need it all. Right. <laughs> we need the print and the audio. Um, but I, I, I do think that's why you're seeing more, as I mentioned, this new podcast done with the Boston Globe spotlight team. I mean, they, they have a printed story and a podcast. And yeah. so I, I think it is a new medium that really can get a lot more attention to, to, to good journalism. So that I'm excited about that. Well, Laura, tell, uh, tell our audience where they can learn more about you and your work and follow you online. So I have a website that has, um, uh, most of my previous work on it and it's just, uh, laurabeal.com. It's L-A-U-R-A-B-E-I-L.com. And you can look on there and, and um, it has my previous work. It has my contact information. Um, so that would be a place you can go. Well, Laura, thank you so much for coming on. And we'll get all that up in the show notes. And it's just fascinating. I mean, uh, I really enjoyed listening to, to the podcast, but um, appreciate your work too. And, and thank you so much for making the time today. Oh, it was my pleasure. And everybody, that is Laura Beal. She is the host of the Dr. Death podcast, uh, still, I think, top five in iTunes right now. And it's, it's amazing. It's worth listening to it. We'll put a link up for you. Wherever, whenever you listen to us, take care. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.